Good morning, Cornerstone. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is my new greeting. It's biblical, as we learned uh, two weeks ago. And uh, we want to uh, thank God together for the blessed retreat that he gave us last week and just what a joy that was to glory in our justification. What a tremendous truth that was that um, Pastor John Smith preached to us, and we thank God for him and also for Dr. Mark Chin for ministering uh, the word to us and all those who attended. I know you were uh, tremendously encouraged and blessed, and uh, we want you to know also we are thanking God for you as a church. Um, Every time we gather together in retreat, we are reminded of the faithfulness of God in each one of our lives and for your faithfulness to Christ and to his church, and we want you to know that we are thanking God for you um, as well. Well, if you have your Bibles, please open them to the book of Philippians this morning. Philippians chapter 1. Two weeks ago, we began a study of the book of Philippians, and we saw that this book is an epistle of joy. The theme of this book is joy in Christ. Chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says, Rejoice. In the Lord always, again I will say, rejoice. Paul has been in prison for preaching the gospel of Christ. He is guarded by a Roman soldier. He awaits a court date, which may end up in his execution. He is being criticized by fellow preachers of the gospel. And even in the midst of all these trials, in a time of severe affliction, Paul writes to the church, And he tells the church, not only is he rejoicing, but he calls on the church to rejoice with him. Chapter 2, verse 18, he says, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. This is a book about joy. It is a book about joy in Christ. It is a book about joy in the gospel. And it is a book about joy that is experienced in the midst of severest trial. In the time when our our faith is put to the test, in times where we feel imprisoned by our circumstances and there doesn't seem to be any way out, Paul would encourage us that there is joy in the midst of severe trial. And we consider the circumstances in which Paul is writing His opening words to the Philippians are powerful, and I would even say that they are stunning. Let's read together, starting in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus." I want to begin with a basic observation, and that is this. A thankful heart is a mark of spiritual maturity. A thankful heart is a mark of spiritual maturity. 
of spiritual growth. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Colossians 3.15 says, Be thankful. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Ephesians 5.20 says, We are to be giving thanks always and for everything, to God the Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It makes sense, doesn't it, in light of the gospel, that we are to be thankful people. We are the redeemed. We have been saved by God's grace. We have been raised out of spiritual darkness to life. We have been given eternal life in Christ. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. God is sovereignly working all circumstances out for our good and for his glory. It makes sense that in light of all that Christ has done for us, that we would be thankful people. 2 Thessalonians 1.3 says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as it is right. And again, in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you. So here is Paul, enduring a season of severe trial, going through circumstances that would sap most men's joy, and he writes an epistle, and the first words out of his mouth is, I thank God. I thank God. I want to emphasize that cultivating a heart of thanksgiving is not a side issue when it comes to our sanctification. This is not some peripheral issue. A thankful heart, a grateful heart, is one of the major fruits of God's work in our lives. And when you can sit in the midst of a severe trial like Paul did, and when you can can write to the church and the first words out of your mouth is thanksgiving and gratitude to God, that is a mark of spiritual maturity. Now we all struggle with this, don't we? We all struggle with cultivating a heart of thanksgiving. You and I know that it is difficult for us to give thanks, especially when we are being tested. We all struggle with the opposite of a thankful heart, which is a grumbling heart or a complaining heart. And Paul addresses that heart in Philippians 2.14, saying, doing all things without grumbling or complaining. I struggle with this, and I know you do as well. And so in Philippians 1, verses 3 to 8, we're going to find three reasons why Paul's heart was so thankful. Paul communicates in this passage three reasons why the Christian should cultivate a heart of thanksgiving. Reason number one, Paul gave thanks because of the Philippians' partnership. He gave thanks because of the Philippians' partnership. Verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. And here's the reason. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I just want to pause at this point and just say that this is an amazing statement of Paul. Paul says, I am praying for you. My heart is to pray for you. And we would say, wait a second, Paul. It is us who needs to pray for Paul. I mean, you're the one in trial. You're the one in prison. You're the one who may have his life ended if the court date doesn't go well. 
And yet Paul was a humble man. His heart was wrapped up in how the church was doing. He wasn't wrapped up in his own personal circumstances. He wasn't throwing a personal pity party for himself. His heart was wrapped up in the church. And so though he was a man who needed prayer, he writes to the Philippians and tells them that I am praying for you. He says, whenever I pray for you, I'm filled with joy. Whenever I pray for you, I'm filled with thanksgiving. You say, why, Paul? Why can you pray in this way? Because, verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. You'll remember that the Philippian church is approximately 12 years old. It was founded in about 51 A.D. And Paul is writing this epistle in 63 A.D., And Paul says, from the first day until now, from the day the church was founded till the day I write this epistle, through the whole history of your church, we have experienced a partnership. It is a partnership in the gospel. Now, what was this partnership, and why was this so meaningful to Paul? Well, the word partnership translates the Greek term koinonia, The word koinonia is usually translated fellowship in the New Testament. Sometimes it is translated communion in the New Testament. The basic idea behind this word is a sharing together of something in common. True koinonia is a sharing together of something in common. And what is it that Paul and the Philippians shared in common? He tells us in verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel. What Paul and the Philippians shared together was their common passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. What they shared together was their common passion for the evangelion, the good news. The good news concerning Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. The triumphant declaration that Jesus Christ has lived a perfect life, that he has died in our place for our sins, that he has risen again to defeat death and hell, and he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. This is the good news, the gospel that we herald, that we believe, that we proclaim. And the gospel, Paul says, was the basis for our partnership, our fellowship. What Paul is saying to the church is what bound our hearts together wasn't just common interests or common hobbies. It wasn't just that we, our personalities clicked or that we had common senses of humor or that we had common life stages and that's what bound our hearts together. What Paul is saying here is that our koinonia, our partnership, was rooted in our common passion for the gospel. The gospel was the basis for our fellowship. The gospel is what bound our hearts together in Christ. Look down at verse 7 for a moment. Paul says, I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. That phrase, the defense and confirmation of the gospel, refers to Paul's preaching ministry, Paul's preaching had a negative component. He defended the gospel from attack and from error. His gospel had a positive component. He confirmed the gospel in people's hearts and in their minds through clear explanation and appeals to Scripture. Paul says, 
because I, I confirmed the gospel and I defended the gospel, I was imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. And what he's saying in verse 7 is, Philippians, you shared with me in this ministry of the gospel. You were partners with me as I proclaimed and defended and suffered for the sake of the gospel. You were, verse 7, partakers with me of grace. And he's referring there to the grace that we all receive when we serve Christ for the sake of the gospel. He's referring to the enabling, empowering grace of God that brings fruitfulness to spiritual service. He says, He's saying, we all serve together for the gospel. I mean, I preached and you prayed for me. I mean, I traveled and you gave financially so that I could continue this work. I suffered and went to prison and you sent Epaphroditus, a dear servant, to come and minister to me. I mean, we were partners in this and we were all receiving God's grace together as we sought to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because of their sharing together in their passion for the gospel, Paul says we experienced koinonia. We experienced true fellowship, true partnership, true union in Christ. What is true fellowship? What is true koinonia? Let me just boil it down really simply. True koinonia is a sharing together in a common passion. And it is a passion to see the gospel proclaimed. That is the basis of all true fellowship. True fellowship, as I said, is not in common hobbies. It's not in common life stages. It's not in common interests. It is in the gospel that our hearts are knit together in unity. True fellowship is a work of the Holy Spirit where he supernaturally knits together hearts that are passionate about the gospel. And he does so in a way that it transcends earthly boundaries and it transcends earthly distinctions. In true fellowship, we we have senior citizens who who have true koinonia with youth students because their passion is the same. They are passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have singles and we have marries with kids who who are hearts knit together in unity because they share a common passion for Jesus Christ. We have socioeconomic boundaries that are obliterated because the gospel transcends all earthly boundaries. Language and ethnic barriers are crossed. True fellowship is a work of the Holy Spirit, and it really is supernatural. It defies all earthly explanation. I've told you before how Elder Bob and I, we would not have been friends in high school. We are completely different personalities and completely different interests. He was an athlete. I was into musical theater. I was a a drama geek. He was a three-sports star. I was a wannabe star in uh, musical theater. We have nothing in common. Uh, We're both Korean, but he speaks almost... Fluent Korean, I speak almost no Korean. But true fellowship transcends all earthly explanations. I've traveled to the Czech Republic and sat down with that dear brother, Daniel Adamowski, who visited our church a number of years ago, and we sat down, and we have nothing in, absolutely nothing in common. I grew up in L.A. He grew up in the Czech Republic. I mean, I, 
I'm Asian, he's European, and we have absolutely nothing in common, yet when we sit down and talk about our common faith in Christ, we realize we have everything in common. This is my brother. His experience is the same as mine. His passion is the same as mine. His vision is the same as mine. The love that is beating in his heart is the same love that is beating in my heart. And I marvel at how the closest relationships that I have had in the Christian life and in my ministry, somehow God has ordained it that some of the closest Christian relationships that I've experienced have gone through the Czech Republic and they have gone through Spokane, Washington. And I just look at that and just say, Lord, that is your work, that is not my work because there is no way I could have engineered that because I have nothing in common on an earthly level from people who grew up in Spokane, Washington, and people who grew up in the Czech Republic, and yet when I sit down with these brothers, I cannot believe that we have everything in common. We have a partnership. We have a koinonia. We share in common. The, the reason we get up in the morning is the same, because this is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not humanly explainable. And if you're struggling with fellowship, brothers and sisters, I know some of you, you may feel disconnected in the church. You may feel not plugged in as much as you want to be. You may feel like you don't have the closeness of relationships that you would desire in a church. And brothers and sisters, I would just encourage you that if you desire to grow in true koinonia, you need to grow in your passion for the gospel. The answer is not in trying to humanly manufacture relationships apart from Christ. The answer is we need to look to Christ and be passionate to Christ and get engaged in gospel mission, get engaged in gospel ministry, get passionate about not only loving the gospel and, and delighting in the gospel, but proclaiming the gospel and giving the gospel out. And when we get passionate about the gospel, what happens is that God knits our hearts together with other believers who are passionate about the same thing. And we experience this supernatural unity and you may find that the closest relationships that you have in this, in this church are people that you would have never thought you'd be friends with because you have nothing in common with them except for the gospel. But if you have the gospel in common with another brother or sister, you have everything in common because that's what unites us as a church. You see, Paul looked to the church and he said, I thank my God for you. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you I'm rejoicing over you because we have this partnership. And brothers and sisters, you know, you know that when you meet another Christian and that Christian shares your heart and you are able to fellowship around the things of the gospel and you realize that you have just met a soulmate, a blood brother in Christ, you know that there is no greater joy in life than that. than to share in this true koinonia. I want you to know as a church that, that I Thank God for you. I thank God for, for the members at Cornerstone Bible Church. Whenever I think of you, I am filled with joy. Whenever the leaders think of you and your love for the gospel, we are filled with thanksgiving because this is our spiritual home. Not in the sense that we just, we just have good relationships, but in the sense that we have this common passion. And when I see your passion for the gospel, it fuels my passion for the gospel. When I see your love for Christ, it feels my love for Christ. And our hearts are filled with joy as a result.
what happens when we take our eyes off the gospel is fellowship becomes superficial. We try to manufacture it in terms of human terms. And brother, I would just encourage you that we need to just focus our eyes on Christ and the gospel and the Holy Spirit will knit our hearts together in relationships with each other. And that is what happened to Paul in his relationship with the Philippian church. The first reason Paul gave thanks was because of the Philippians' partnership. There's a second reason why Paul gave thanks, and that's found in verse 6. He gave thanks because of God's promise. Paul gave thanks because of God's promise. Verse 6, he writes, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now this is real practical because someone is going to say to Paul, Paul, really, how can you be so thankful when the church is filled with problems? Paul, really, how can you be so thankful when the church is filled with sinful people? How can you say that you always rejoice and you always give thanks and you are always praying for them with joy when you know that the church has struggles? I mean, do you have rose-colored glasses on? Do you, do you really see the church accurately? Paul, we are struggling with this and we're struggling with that and, and we have these issues and these disappointments. Don't you know the imperfections of the church? And Paul knew all about the problems in the church. He wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, which is all about the church's problems. But Paul answers by saying in verse 6, I give thanks because of the promise of God. I give thanks because of God's promise. Verse 6, and I am sure of this. Paul is saying more than I am optimistic that things are going to work out. Or I see that the glass is half full, not half empty. He is saying I have reached a deep, settled conviction in my heart. I have been personally persuaded I have been come to this spiritual conviction. The verb is in the, per, the perfect tense, which refers to a past act which has continuing results. Paul has said, I've reached a point in my spiritual life where I have reached this deep spiritual conviction. I am sure. What are you sure of, Paul? Verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now that's an awesome promise. That is a promise that will bring you joy and thanksgiving. Would you note here that salvation is described as the good work of God. Salvation is God's work. It is his Good work. Salvation is the good work that God begins, and salvation is the good work that God completes. We know from Scripture that salvation has three elements. There is a past element in our justification. In our justification, we are freed from the penalty of sin. We are declared to be righteous through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Salvation has a present element, and that is our sanctification. In our sanctification, we are freed from the power of sin. We are progressively being conformed to the likeness of Christ as God continues to work in our lives by his grace. 
Justification declares us righteous positionally. Sanctification makes us righteous practically. And these two stages culminate in the third and final stage of sanctification, of salvation, which is our glorification. In our justification, we are freed from the penalty of sin. In our sanctification, we are freed from the power of sin. And in our glorification, we will be freed from the very presence of sin. In our glorification, we will be made to be like Christ. 1 John 3, 2, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Justification in the past, sanctification in the present, glorification in the future. These are three basic stages in the good work of God. Three basic stages in our salvation. And Paul says in verse 6 that God began the good work in you. God began the good work in you. Paul is referring back to the moment of our conversion, the moment that we came to Christ, the moment we exercised faith and believed in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And he says that God began that work. Now it's very important that you understand this. It is critical that you track with what I'm saying here. This is not a peripheral issue. This is critical to our joy and our thanksgiving. We learn from this text that conversion is the good work of God. Conversion is the good work of God. In Paul's words, God is the one who begins the good work in us. Conversion is God's work. It is his sovereign will that brings about our conversion. This teaching is found throughout the New Testament. In Acts chapter 16, verse 14, Lydia came to believe the gospel. And the text says that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Lydia's conversion was the work of God. God opened her heart. To receive the gospel. In James 1.18, James says, Of his own will, of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Who makes us into new creatures? God does. Conversion is a result of the sovereign work of God. 1 Peter 1.3 Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Who caused us to be born again? God did. God is the one who initiates spiritual rebirth, spiritual conversion. The point is that you and I did not decide to be spiritually born. The point is that you and I did not initiate the good work of God in our lives. Being born again, being spiritually reborn is not the work of man. It is the work of God. We were involved. You and I believed. We repented of our sins from our perspective. It was us who was coming to Christ. 
And yet from God's perspective, that was all God opening our hearts, God causing us to be born again, God regenerating our hearts to make us into new creatures, God through his sovereign will bringing us out of death into life. If you need help with this, think of your spiritual birth. Think of your physical birth. Physical birth is similar to spiritual birth. Did you have anything to do with the day you were born to your mother? Did you counsel your mother that my birthday sounds like a good day to be born? Did you decide the name of your hospital? Did you counsel your father that the 20th century seems like a good time to live in this world and I want to be born now. If you're honest, you'll realize you really had nothing to do with it. You were involved. You came out kicking and screaming into this world. From your perspective, you were coming out and it was darkness and it was light. But you didn't initiate your physical birth. God did. And if you had nothing to do with your physical birth, then brothers and sisters, be humble enough to acknowledge that you had nothing to do with your spiritual birth either. God caused you to be born again. God did it. It is God's work, and therefore God receives all the glory. Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Now that's very vivid. You were dead You were not just sick. You were not just dying. You were not just struggling to survive. You were dead in your sins. A dead man can't respond. A dead man cannot hear. A dead man cannot listen. You can preach to a dead man until you're blue in the face. He will not listen to what you say. And that was who you were before you came to Christ. You were dead. Verse 4 says, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. Conversion is not that you and I were drowning and God threw us a life preserver into the ocean and we grabbed onto it and he hauled us in. Conversion is that you and I were dead. We were drowned. We were at the bottom of the ocean. We were a corpse We had no pulse. We had no capacity to even grab onto a life preserver if it was offered to us. And conversion is that God dug us out from the bottom of the ocean. He brought us up on dry land and he miraculously and sovereignly breathed new life into us so that our dead hearts became alive in Christ. And he did this, Paul says, according to his great mercy not because of anything that was in us, but all according to his sovereign grace. And when we became alive in Christ, we came out with new hearts and new desires and new affections and a new will and desire to serve Christ the rest of our days. Conversion is the good work of God. Paul says in Philippians 1.6, God began the good work in us. And what Paul is reasoning from Philippians 1.6 is that if God began the good work in us sovereignly, according to his sovereign will, then you can be sure 
that God will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If God began the work, then God is going to be the one who finishes the work. And so Paul can look at the church with all its imperfections and all its sins and all its strugglings, all its disappointments, and say, I'm not upset. I'm not anxious. I'm not fretting. I'm not getting mad because the church has all these problems. I'm not frustrated. I believe in God's promise. I believe that God began the good work and God is still working and God will continue to work and God will not stop working until he brings this work to completion at the day of Christ Jesus and that is why I can give thanks always. Always. You see, some of us, we understand the sovereignty of God and salvation. We understand that conversion is God's work but it has not translated into how we view the church. And what Paul is saying is that this doctrinal understanding of the sovereignty of God in conversion and justification and sanctification and glorification is not just a truth that is in my head that informs my theology. It also informs my attitudes and how I looked at other Christians. I can look at another brother in Christ and say, look, You've got problems, but God is working. I can look at the struggles in the church and say, yes, we have heartaches, but God is working. I can look at the disappointments and all the pain caused by sin in the church, and I can say, I'm still thankful. God's in control. God is not going to relent. He's going to finish the work that he began in us. Nobody receives a half salvation. Nobody receives a partial salvation. Nobody receives one aspect of salvation without receiving the entire thing. If God is the one who has converted you, if God is the one who has justified you, then God will be the one who will also sanctify you and God is the one who will also glorify you. Romans 8.30, And those whom he predestined he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Would you notice that phrase in verse 6? He will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I love that phrase. I love that word, the day of Jesus Christ. It's found three times in the book of Philippians. It's the day of rejoicing. It's the day of reward. It's the day of glorification for the believer. It's the day when we will be made to be like Jesus Christ. Paul says, I live my life in the light of that day, not in light of this day. My eyes are fixed and focused on the day of Jesus Christ. And I know that God is not going to stop until we reach that day. The bottom line is if you view the church in light of what it is today, you will have plenty of reasons to be discouraged and to become critical. But if you view the light, the church, in light of what it will become, you will have plenty of reasons to rejoice and give thanks.
want to remind you and just encourage you, brothers and sisters, that this world is not our home. I want to remind you and encourage you that our struggle here is not permanent. I want to exhort you to take your eyes off this day and fix your eyes on that day, the day of Jesus Christ, the day of our glorification. I want to remind you that, yes, today we are in the midst of our sanctification. We are being progressively being made into the likeness of Christ, and sometimes sanctification is a slow and painful process. And there are a lot of disappointments along the way. But I want to encourage you that sanctification is not the end stage of our salvation. That sanctification will one day give way to glorification. And that one day we will no longer not only be freed from the power of sin, but one day we will be freed from the very presence of sin. And that glorification will be the eternal state of the believer in Christ. 10,000 years from now, we will see sanctification was a small time period in the overall picture of eternity. And that if you have been converted by God's grace and you have been justified by God's grace, then you will be sanctified by God's grace and God will glorify you by his grace. I want to encourage you that the day of Christ Jesus is coming. It is real. It is a fixed day. It is coming soon. That if you fix your eyes on that day, you can give thanks with Paul. You can look at the church and say, no matter what, I give thanks. I give thanks always, and I rejoice because of God's promise. Paul gave thanks because of the Philippians' partnership. He gave thanks because of God's promise. And the third and final reason is in verses 7 to 8, Paul gave thanks because the Philippians were in his heart. The Philippians were in his heart. I said to you two weeks ago that Paul loved this church. I mean, he really did. He loved the church of Philippi. He looked at the church and just felt godly affection and emotion toward them. It seems like he loved all the churches, but that the church of Philippi had a special place in his heart. They were a part of him. He lived or died with this church. We see in this passage that Paul's ministry was a heart ministry. It wasn't a job. It wasn't his duty. 2 Corinthians 6.11, he says, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. We tend to distinguish and divide people into, well, that guy's a head guy. He knows theology. And that guy's a heart guy. He loves people. But for Paul... He was both. His head was convinced and rooted in deep theological convictions from God's word. And what this ushered forth is a deep heart commitment and relationship for the church of Jesus Christ. 
In verse 7, he says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all. You say, Dan, are we getting touchy-feely? Well, if it's biblical, he's feeling here in this text. He's saying it's more than just an act of the will. I have feelings for you, is the idea. And he says in verse 7, it is right. It's right for me to feel this way. Paul, why are you such an emotional person? Why do you weep over the church? Why do you have all of these, um, these emotions and affections for the church? And Paul would say, it's right. It's right to feel. Some commentators believe that Paul has in mind here the era of Stoicism, which was very popular in his day. And Stoicism is very popular and alive in, all, in our day as well, in the church today. In Stoicism, passionate emotions are held with great suspicion. The Stoic lives his life with his guard up. He avoids relational commitments He builds barriers around his heart so that he will never be vulnerable and never get hurt. And Paul would have nothing to do with the Stoics' philosophy. He says, it is right. It is right to feel this way. 1 Thessalonians 2.8 So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Because, verse 7, I hold you in my cardia, is the word. I hold you in the deepest, innermost part of who I am. You are part of me. Say, Paul, that sounds like a Hallmark card. Paul, you're not really being sincere. I mean, we've heard those kind of things said in many different ways, and you can't really mean that. I mean, at least, Paul, you're exaggerating a little bit. Or maybe you're being a little emotionally manipulative because you want people to follow your spiritual leadership. And so you're just saying these words in order to gain their loyalty and to gain their attention. And Paul says in verse 8, God is my witness. If you question my sincerity and what I say, if you think I'm exaggerating, if you think these are empty words, let me call an oath. I will call upon God to witness to the sincerity of my words, that I am not being manipulative. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. The verb to yearn pictures a man stretched out with longing towards an object in view. And Paul is saying here, I'm homesick for the church. I am filled with longing until we can be together again. My heart stretches out with desire and yearning and longing because you are in my heart. 
And why does Paul feel this way? Why does he desire this? Because he says it is right. It's not that it was just, oh, Paul, you're a people person, and I'm not a people person. You're relational, and I'm theological. You're a heart guy, and I'm a head guy. No, he says, my longings and feelings are rooted in the deep spiritual convictions found in God's word. It is right for us to feel this way about each other. Why? Because, verse 8, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. The splankna in the Greek. It is the strongest Greek word for the feeling of compassion. Literally, the inward parts of Jesus Christ is what he's saying. He's saying the reason I feel this way about you is, mark this, I understand how Jesus feels about you. I understand the the heart of Jesus, the inward parts of Jesus, literally the, the lungs, the heart, the liver, the deepest pit of emotions. This splankna, this longing and emotion that I feel is not from me. It is from Jesus Christ. When you see my emotions and my love for you, realize this, that this is Jesus expressing how he feels about you through me. It is the affection of Christ Jesus. John Stott has written that this expression demands more than imitation. Paul is saying that he has come to such a depth in his union with Christ that their hearts are beating as one, that the greater heart, the heart of Christ, has taken possession of his servant, and that the love of of Christ has become the center of Paul's character. When Paul looked at the church, he saw and understood how much Jesus loved the church and how Jesus' love for the church was not just a willpower love. It was not just an act of commitment, but that it was a longing, a feeling, a heart of compassion. The inward parts were moved toward the church that he loves us from his heart, he loves us from his splankna, his affections. And because that heart of Jesus Christ had taken a hold of Paul's heart, Paul could say that the way I feel about you is the way that Jesus feels about you. Have you ever thought about, Christian, that when you love another Christian, that Jesus is expressing his love for that Christian through you? Have you ever thought about that when you bring a meal to another Christian, that what you are doing is not just being a good person, but you are literally being an instrument of Jesus Christ to love that other Christian? And that the affection of Jesus Christ is being expressed through your hands and through your heart and through your emotions. Jesus is loving that Christian through you. 
And have you ever thought about, Christian, how when you receive love from another Christian, when another Christian loves you or writes you an encouraging note or an encouraging email or an encouraging Facebook post or just says, look, I'm praying for you, when another Christian reaches out to you, that that's not just that, that Christian loving you, that is Jesus Christ loving you through that person. Because we are the body of Christ. We are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. And the way that Jesus expresses his love for the church is through the avenue of other Christians who understand his heart of love and who share and express his heart of love. I want to be a channel that Christ can use to love other Christians, don't you? I would love to be an instrument that Jesus Christ could tell another believer, this is how much I love you, and why is that? Because look at how this Christian loves you. And every time I receive love from another Christian, I want to be reminded of the love of Christ, the heart of Christ, the splankna of Christ for me and for you. What this passage is ultimately about is not Paul. It is not about Paul's affections, Paul's godliness, Paul's emotions, Paul's thanksgiving. What this passage is ultimately about, what Paul would say, it is, it is about how Christ is expressing his heart for you Philippians through me. It is about Jesus Christ. Why do we give thanks? We give thanks because we have a partnership. We experience true koinonia as our hearts are knit together in unity in the gospel. We give thanks because we live in light of God's promise. Scriptures tell us that God will finish the work in us and so we can cultivate a heart of thanksgiving no matter what the struggles or problems in the church are today. We give thanks because here in the church, we have genuine heart relationships with one another. We are not like the Stoics because our Savior is not a Stoic Savior. We open our hearts wide to one another, and we love each other with genuine affection. All of these things are reasons why we give thanks, but mostly, primarily, we give thanks because of Christ himself. We give thanks because of verse 8, the affection of Jesus Christ for us. We give thanks because of who Jesus is and what he has done. We give thanks because Jesus has not only given to us his life, he has given to us his heart. And we give thanks because in order to express his splankna, his heart of compassion for us, he came to this world and died on a cross 2,000 years ago and ra- rose triumphantly from the grave and has ascended to the right hand of the Father. We have a gracious Savior. Brothers and sisters, let us cultivate a heart of thanksgiving. Let us repent of our critical, grumbling, complaining spirits in light of who Jesus is. Let us give thanks to God. And this week, let us remember who Jesus is and what he has done in our lives. Let's stand together and let's close our service.
in a word of prayer. Brothers and sisters, I remind you that as we close our time in prayer, that what we have heard is the words of God, and that as Christians, our desire is to respond to God in obedience to his word. And I also want to remind you and just shepherd your hearts that what we've talked about this morning, cultivating a heart of thanksgiving, this is not a peripheral issue. It is a central work that God does in our sanctification. It is one of the main fruits of a truly godly, sanctified Christian. Let us pursue Christ, and as a result of what Christ is doing in our lives, let us give thanks and cultivate this type of heart. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this look into the life of Paul and his heart for the church. Lord, as we see his heart of thanksgiving in the midst of trial, we are convicted, Lord, of so many times when this has not been our heart, Lord, in the midst of our own trials. Lord, how many times have we not been thankful? How many times, Lord, have we fallen prey to grumbling and complaining and doubting your goodness and becoming critical Lord, in the midst of the seasons of life. Lord, help us. Help us to fix our eyes on Christ. Help us to fix our eyes on the gospel. Help us to fix our eyes on the cross. And Lord, help us to cultivate hearts of thanksgiving this week in the midst of all the circumstances that we go through. Lord, thank you for speaking to us through your word. We pray all this in Christ's precious name. Amen.